But please take your Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 2, please, this morning. Galatians chapter 2. Um, we've been studying the book of Galatians now for, um, I think, four, four weeks or so, four or five weeks. And uh, we're continuing on in our study this morning. We're moving on to chapter 2. We've been in chapter 1 for a few weeks. We're moving on to chapter 2. And the reason why I say that is I want to... Um, I want to remind you that when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, he wasn't thinking in terms of chapters and verses, right? The chapter divisions and verse divisions were added much later in the Middle Ages as an easy way of kind of referencing the Bible, parts of the Bible, very quickly. And so chapter 2 is not a new thought. It really continues the thought of chapter 1. It's, it's actually part of, of Paul's uh, argument to the Galatians. And, and what he's doing in the first couple of chapters, we refer to it as, a, as the historical section of Galatians or the autobiographical section of Galatians. Uh, Paul is kind of relating a narrative of his, of his conversion and his early ministry and how that impacts uh, his ministry to the Galatians and what it meant for them. As you might remember, in chapter 1, Paul was beginning to defend himself from some accusations that he was not a real apostle and he was not preaching the true gospel there in the, in the Galatian churches. Paul had ministered there during his first missionary journey, had preached the gospel. People came to faith in Christ. He was establishing those churches. And at some point after he left, there were some some Jewish Christians, so-called Jewish Christians who had come in and afterwards were saying that Paul did not preach the true gospel. He had, he had distorted the gospel. Maybe he had misunderstood the gospel. Maybe he deliberately did it. But he was not preaching the true gospel and therefore uh, he had sort of corrupted it. And the Galatians had not believed it. They hadn't done everything that was necessary for salvation. Believing in Jesus Christ was certainly the, the first step. It was an essential step. But now the Galatians needed to be circumcised and observe other, other works of the law to add to their salvation, to, to really make sure that they were saved. And Paul is writing that letter, this letter to combat that accusation. In fact, the first two chapters is in some way, we call it an autobiographical section. Paul is talking about his life, relating his experience and in his conversion and his ministry. But it's also an apologetic section in which Paul is defending himself against those false accusations. And one of those key aspects of that accusation there is that these Judaizers, these Jewish teachers that had come into the Galatian church, were saying that Paul either had misunderstood or distorted the gospel of the Jerusalem apostles. In other words, he had somehow been disconnected. He had un- misunderstood them. He had deliberately de- falsified the gospel to gain a following. And what the Judaizers were teaching was that you know, we're, we're the real uh, authorized teachers of the Jerusalem apostles, that we are, we are the, the true followers of those who follow Jesus, the original disciples of Jesus. And so what you need to do is believe us and not Paul. And Paul is defending himself against that accusation in chapter 1 by showing his independence from the Jerusalem apostles. He says that God had set him apart to be an apostle, not the Jerusalem apostles. He says that he received the gospel from a direct revelation of Jesus Christ, not through the discipleship of the Jerusalem apostles. He says that God commissioned him to go minister in the places where he went. The Jerusalem apostles weren't the ones who were directing his ministry. 
In fact, in chapter 1, Paul says he really had no relationship to speak of with the Jerusalem apostles, and so therefore they could not have unduly affected his understanding of the gospel or the course of his ministry. The essential aspect of that, the essential message or point to be made from chapter 1 is that Paul proclaimed to the Galatians the true gospel. And if he proclaimed the true gospel to them, they must embrace it and they must continue in it and they must not deviate from it. Now as we move into chapter 2, Paul is continuing on with that train of thought. He relates for the Galatians a second visit he made with the Jerusalem apostles. And it was during that visit that the Jerusalem apostles affirmed Paul's gospel and ministry. And they demonstrated that they were co-laborers with Paul in the same gospel, although they were serving in primarily different fields. So let's look at chapter 2. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's so rich with history and argument and, and, and not only what's happening in Paul's life in the past, but also his relationship with the Galatians and theologically what that means for them. But it is a very difficult passage to actually preach and work through. So let's read the passage and then I want to come back around and look at what this has to say about his, Paul's visit there, his second visit to Jerusalem and those apostles that were there and how that affects our understanding of the gospel. Galatians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a, re- a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order, that to, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in, not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's begin by looking at the background of Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. Paul notes in verse 1 that he made another trip to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion. This trip then would be 11 years after his first visit. Remember that three years after his conversion, this is related back in in chapter 1, verses 18 to uh, 20, that Paul says after his first visit to Jerusalem, three years after his conversion, now he made a second visit some 11 years later or 14 years after his conversion. The first visit, again, which took place three years after his conversion, only lasted 15 days, which by ancient standards is a, very, is a relatively brief period of time. On that visit, Paul only visited with the Apostle Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would end up become, uh, becoming the head of the church in Jerusalem. 
Paul only visited those two and only for a period of about two weeks. This was more or less a sort of get to know you kind of visit. In two weeks time, there would not have been enough time for Peter and James to disciple Paul, to enhance his understanding of the gospel, or to exert any formidable influence on the direction of his ministry. And Paul's purpose in telling the Galatians about that first visit was to emphasize his independence from Peter and the Jerusalem apostles, that the understanding of his gospel, that the direction of his ministry was not in any way dependent upon them. By maintaining his distance from the Jerusalem apostles, both geographically and relationally, Paul was not implying that there was some kind of schism between himself and the Jerusalem apostles. He's just emphasizing here that he doesn't need their confirmation. He doesn't need their affirmation. He doesn't need their validation in what he preaches or where he goes to preach it. God had set him apart for his ministry. And therefore, he was a servant of Christ. He was not a servant of any man. God had entrusted the gospel to Paul. God had commissioned Paul to preach that gospel. Well, now on this second visit to Jerusalem, Paul here intends to show the Galatians that there was no variance between himself and the Jerusalem apostles. So Paul is independent. He's not dependent upon them in any way, but there's no schism. They actually agree on their understanding of the gospel and the direction of Paul's ministry. It's not here that Paul is trying to say that, that he preached one gospel and the Jerusalem apostles preached a different gospel and that the Galatians now have to choose one or the other. He's saying that there is an agreement that they share on what the gospel is. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul had already stated that there is only one gospel. And those who are to faithfully preach the gospel are to preach that gospel, the one gospel, the true gospel. Anyone who preaches a different gospel, no matter who he is, whether it be Paul himself or an angel from heaven or the Judaizers or the Jerusalem apostles, anyone who preaches a different gospel than the gospel that Paul had proclaimed to the Galatians is to be anathema, eternally condemned. That's in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And so Paul wants to show the Galatians here that he and the Jerusalem apostles are on the same page. They are in total agreement about the gospel. And Paul relates that by sharing about this second visit, second visit to Jerusalem. By showing the gospel agreement between himself and the Jerusalem apostles, Paul demonstrates that it's the Judaizers who are in error. See, the Judaizers have been saying, we come from Peter, we come from James, we come from John, we come from those original followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And therefore, you should believe us. We have a direct connection to that church. Paul does not. Paul misunderstood them. Paul is, is out here preaching a different gospel to gain a following. And, and so what Paul is doing by saying, no, I agree with the Jerusalem apostles. They agree with me. He is sort of triangulating the, Jerusalem, the, 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 the Judaizers and saying, they're the ones who have misunderstood they're the ones who have disordered the gospel. They're the ones who have wrongly proclaimed that gospel to you. And so the focus of verses 1 through 10 here is to prove to the Galatians that Paul is not beholden to the Jerusalem apostles, but he is in agreement with them. He is not beholden to them. He's not dependent upon them. But there is a consistency in their agreement about the gospel and the direction of Paul's ministry. Now, Paul notes also in verse 1 that he made the visit, this visit to Jerusalem with two companions, Barnabas 
and Titus. Now, Barnabas was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Jew who had, was born in Cyprus. He was born away from the Holy Land, the, 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 the city of Jerusalem in Judea, where most of the, of the Jews lived at that time. Barnabas had been born in Cyprus. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was someone who was very well-educated. He was from the tribe of Levi, but he was not indigenous. He was not native to Jerusalem. But at some point, Barnabas did go to Jerusalem because the book of Acts says that he was a, a very important person in the Jerusalem church in those early days. In fact, he's mentioned, but very briefly, very barely, if you will. He's, he's an underrated, underappreciated member of the Jerusalem church. But the apostles were encouraged by him, and so they gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He had sold a field and had taken the proceeds of that field and had given it to the church to help minister to the poor who were suffering within the church. Acts also tells us that Barnabas was a key link between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. According to Acts 9.27, Barnabas made Paul's introduction to Peter and James on his first visit to Jerusalem. And later in Acts 11, when the Hellenistic Jews started coming to faith in Christ at Antioch, the Jerusalem apostles sent Barnabas to go and check it out. Go see what's happening there. Is it really the work of the Spirit? And then come back and make a report to us. And the, Acts 11 says that when, when Barnabas noticed what was happening, that the Spirit really was working and ministering there, and people were coming to faith in Christ, Barnabas went to Tarsus, where Paul's hometown, and got Paul back and took him back to Antioch so that he could labor and minister for the Lord there in Antioch. And Barnabas, of course, would become Paul's ministry companion on his first missionary journey. And so the Galatians would have been very familiar with Barnabas. Paul's other travel partner here is Titus. And Titus also would become a, a long-time ministry partner and co-laborer with Paul. It's later on that Paul gives him charge of the churches in, on the island of Crete, where he puts Titus there and says, establish the churches, appoint elders, lead them, disciple them, help them to establish those churches so they are strong churches. So the letter to Titus is the same Titus. This is the one whom Paul would later set up on the island of Crete as sort of the, 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 the chief minister, if you will, over those churches there. What is important to know about Titus here is that he was a Gentile. Verse 3 says that he was a Greek. That's just a way of referring to the fact that he was a Gentile. Titus was a Gentile. And that's the point of emphasis here in Galatians chapter 2. As a Gentile, Titus would have been uncircumcised. And so Titus becomes a critical figure in this visit to Jerusalem. In fact, he becomes something of a, of a test case, if you will, for the gospel. Titus becomes a test case for the gospel. Now, as an uncircumcised Gentile, the question that everyone should be asking here is, well, how will the Jerusalem apostles receive Titus? Will they receive him as a true brother in Christ? And again, if we look at this incident through the lens of the problem in, the, in, the, in Galatia, then we would have to see that something similar is taking place there, right? The Judaizers were insisting that the Galatians be circumcised to make their conversion to Christ complete. And if we can see what's happening in Galatia there, I think we can appreciate even more why Paul chooses to write this in his letter to them. 
we can appreciate how significant a stumbling block this might have been for apostolic unity in Paul's ministry and in the ministry of the Jerusalem apostles. We need to understand two important matters as background to understand why Titus is a test case for the gospel. First, at this point in church history, the church was primarily composed of Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And that makes sense, right? Jesus, when he came during his earthly ministry, ministered first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The first followers, the first ones to hear and respond in faith to the gospel were Jews. The apostles lived and primarily ministered at first in Jerusalem where the population was what? Overwhelmingly Jewish. So most people who heard the gospel, most people who responded to the gospel were Jews. And if they were Jews, they had already been circumcised. And so this issue of circumcision would not have been a big issue for Jewish Christians at all. The second thing to keep in mind here is at this time in history, Gentiles who converted to Judaism were circumcised as part of their conversion process. So let's just say 50 years before Christ, I'm a Gentile. I have come to know something about the true God. I read about him in the Old Testament scriptures. I see what is being practiced and I understand that this is God's revealed religion. And I want to convert as a Gentile to Judaism what I would need to do is embrace the Jewish practices. And one of the key things, almost in a way in which baptism functions as sort of an entry point into the church, circumcision was an entry point for Gentiles into Judaism. Gentiles who were converting to Judaism would have been circumcised. Now, although Gentiles who were believing the gospel were not converting to Judaism, they were converting to Christianity, the vast majority of Christians were what? They were Jewish. So as Gentiles were coming into a predominantly Jewish church, there would have been this idea of what do we do about these Jewish practices? What do we do about circumcision in particular? Jewish Christians understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promised. But in those early days, it was very natural for Jewish Christians to continue doing those things they had done before they believed in Jesus. We read in Acts that they continued to go to the temple. They worshiped God in the temple. They prayed in the temple. They followed the, the ritualistic prayers. They obeyed the various food laws. They celebrated the Jewish holidays. They celebrated the Sabbath. They circumcised their baby boys. So in these early days, as Christianity was advancing and developing, some of these matters yet had not been fleshed out. And so some Jewish Christians demanded that Gentile converts to Christianity needed to continue to observe and submit themselves to those Old Testament regulations like circumcision. And some, like Paul observed happening in Galatia, were requiring these things as part of becoming a Christian, that they needed to become circumcised to really be a Christian. And of course, Paul understands that as a work of the law added to faith in Christ. So what did the Jerusalem apostles do with Titus when Paul brought him to Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So the Jerusalem apostles did not force Titus to be circumcised. They didn't require circumcision, even though he was a Gentile convert to Christianity. 
So by not requiring Titus to be circumcised, the Jerusalem apostles received him as a brother in Christ. They affirmed that faith alone in Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Titus didn't need to be circumcised in order to embrace the gospel, in order to be considered a Christian. Titus then exemplifies Paul's statement in verse 16, the main point of the letter. Look at verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So Paul is saying here that Christ's death and resurrection alone is sufficient to atone for sins. That Christ's death and resurrection alone is sufficient to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into relationship with God that had been broken by sin. That Christ's death and resurrection was sufficient to bring us into God's family, to be adopted as his children. Nothing else is needed because Christ did everything that was necessary for our, our salvation. We can't contribute anything. Why? Because there's nothing to contribute. Nothing that we could contribute. But even more, because Jesus did it all. He did everything that was necessary. So no works of the law are necessary. No works of the law are sufficient in any measure to result in our justification. If Christ did everything necessary for our salvation, then we must trust in Him alone and what he has done for us. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So, even if the Jerusalem apostles had forced Titus to be circumcised, it would have been unnecessary, right? Titus didn't need circumcision. If he had been circumcised, it would have been futile. It would have done nothing for his salvation. In fact, just the opposite. It would have been adding a work of the law to what Christ had already done. And it would have been, as Paul says in verse 4, binding Titus back into a slavery from which he had already been freed. So the Jerusalem apostles' acceptance of Titus proves that they agreed with Paul's gospel. The very gospel that Paul had preached to the Galatians. The very gospel they had embraced and believed when he had preached it to them. And if that's the case, if Titus is not required to be circumcised, if the Jerusalem, or excuse me, the Galatians had received Paul's gospel as he preached it, then they, like Titus, need not submit themselves to circumcision as the Judaizers have been insisting. Now, while it's interesting here that the Jerusalem apostles did not force Titus to be circumcised, Paul does mention another group here who were trying to compel him to be circumcised, and that is in verse 4, these so-called false brothers. Paul says in verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom in, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that we might bring, that they might bring us into slavery. There are these false brothers within the Jerusalem church who were uh, trying to force Titus to be circumcised. They were, they were putting Titus to the screws. They were putting Paul to the screws saying, Look, you've got to circumcise him. Now it's interesting to me, who these false brothers are. We don't know a lot about them, but we can discern some things by the language that Paul uses here in his description in verse 4. First, Paul refers to them by the word brothers, which is 
the word that Paul normally uses in his letters to speak about the relationships that we have with other Christians within the church. Because we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we, because we've been adopted into God's family, and because we have God as our Father, that changes the relationship that we have with one another, right? If God is our Father, that means we are all part of His family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the language that speaks about the way that we relate to one another in the church. And so the fact that Paul uses the word brothers here indicates that they participated in the life of the Jerusalem church. But notice he calls them false brothers. Pseudo-Adelphos. Pseudo-false. Fake. Phony. They were not genuine brothers in the family of God. In other words, they were not real Christians. They passed themselves off as Christians. They may have been received by others as Christians, as followers of Jesus. But they were imposters. Whether they knew it or not, they were imposters. By calling them false brothers, Paul indicates that they were not trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They were not trusting in the sufficiency of His death and resurrection alone for their salvation. They were trusting in some measure of faith in Christ and works of the law. They were trying to add these various Jewish works to what Christ had already done on the cross. And so I think Paul brings them up here is because they bear a very eerie resemblance to those Judaizers who are wreaking havoc in the Galatian churches. Now these false brothers, though they were not genuine Christians, were nonetheless part of the church in Jerusalem. They gave some kind of testimony that resembled true faith. They gave some kind of evidence that resembled being a true Christian. But they were false. They were fake believers. But yet they had been nonetheless incorporated into the church. And they may have become very influential. They may have even infiltrated the ranks of leadership within the church. They claim some kind of a connection or perhaps even some kind of authority from the Jerusalem apostles. And, of course, they do bear, again, a very eerie resemblance to those Judaizers in Galatia. Which I think is why Paul is including this account as part of his visit. Now, how these false brothers slipped into the church or were brought secretly into the church, Paul doesn't say. <clears throat> But their demand for Titus to be circumcised clearly countered the stance of the Jerusalem apostles, right? The Jerusalem apostles said, we're not going to force Titus to be circumcised. We receive him as a brother. He is one of us. And yet these false brothers were trying to add some requirements to Titus so that they would agree that he was a true brother. They were adding another requirement to the gospel, Right? The normal response, how do we respond to the gospel? We respond in repentance and faith in Christ alone. But these false brothers were demanding works of the law. In this case, the particular work was the work of circumcision. In other words, they could say, they would say, that Titus as a Gentile could only be counted as a Christian, they could only count it as a true brother if he were, if he were to submit to circumcision. Without circumcision, he would not really be saved. And again, this is exactly what the Judaizers were saying to the Galatians, that they could not truly be saved unless they were circumcised. 
The impact of these false brothers and their demand for circumcision, Paul says, is that they return those who are genuinely trusting in Christ to their former slavery. Now, this is an important part to remember here, that in Christ's death and resurrection, one of the many things that Christ does for us is he has broken us free from the slavery that once bound us. Slavery from the bonds of sin. Slavery from the bonds of death. Slavery from the bonds of Satan's power. Slavery from the bonds of the works of the law. All of these things enslave. All of these things entrap us. All of these things do not give life. But Christ broke these bonds of slavery. And He set us free to live as He created us to live. He set us free to live as God intended for all of us to live. Free to love Him fully. Free to worship Him appropriately. Free to serve Him and do His will. And free to live in peaceful and joyful community with His people. The Gospel calls us to freedom. Paul will say that in chapter 5, verse 13. The gospel calls us to freedom. And the gospel calls us to live in this freedom to the glory of God and the good of the saints. But the false brothers here sought to bring Titus back to his former slavery. And the Judaizers were seeking to bring these Galatian people to whom Paul is writing from the depths of his heart for them. They were trying by mandating circumcision to bring the Galatians back under the slavery from which Christ had redeemed them. The law here was undermining the free work of grace that God gives in the gospel. So these false brothers demanded Titus to be circumcised, and yet Paul does not budge. In verse 5, he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul didn't even consider this. This wasn't even an option. This wasn't even up for discussion. Paul was not going to have any kind of recourse to do what these false brothers were demanding of Titus. He would not subject Titus to his former slavery. And so he refuses to submit to their demands. What is the result then of Paul's refusal to circumcise Titus? Well, obviously it has implications for Titus, right? Titus could be counted as a true brother in Christ. He could be counted as a true brother because he was trusting in Christ alone for salvation. He'd been justified by Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. He was not justified by works of the law. Titus could have fellowship with his Jewish brothers in Christ because he, like they, were children of God the Father who had saved them in the sufficient work of Christ. But Paul's refusal to circumcise Titus also had implications for the Galatians. Did you notice that? And not just for the Galatians, but even for us, for all of us. Paul says that he did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, if Paul had accommodated to these false brothers, look, man, we're we're having this problem we're having this argument let me just avoid the argument altogether we'll just circumcise titus and be done with it right if paul had done that it would have set a dangerous precedent it would have suggested then that every christian would need to be circumcised in order to be saved the galatians would have been right to submit to the demands of the judaizers to be circumcised but then again it all would have 
brought back the curse and the yoke of the law from which we had been delivered. Paul's refusal to circumcise Titus preserved the truth of the gospel for the Galatians. This meant that they needed not submit themselves to circumcision. They need not submit themselves to any work of the law to be justified before God. They only needed to continue in that which they believed. They only needed to continue trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The Galatians can stand in the face of a false gospel by resting in the true gospel, a gospel already established in the precedent of Titus in Jerusalem before Jesus' original disciples. And of course, that precedent doesn't just apply to the Galatians, but it applies for all of us, for all believers. When we believe the gospel and trust in Christ for our salvation, we don't submit ourselves to circumcision or any other work of righteousness to attain God's great salvation. The gospel alone is sufficient to save. And that's the enduring lesson of what happens here in the Galatian churches. The gospel is sufficient to save. So let me ask you, what are you trusting in to save you from your sins? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in something else besides Christ? Yes, I believe in Jesus. You believe in Christ. But are you also trusting that something else can add, be added to what you believe about Christ to give you salvation? Are you trusting in your good works? Are you somehow thinking that, okay, trusting in Jesus is the first part, and now I've got to keep doing all these good works to make sure that I keep it, or that I add those works onto what Christ has already done? Do you think you can somehow impress God even more than you, than you are, than you can, by doing good works before Him? And the Bible says that really the good works that we do are not really good works in the first place. No one does good before God. Our works are as filthy rags before Him. There is none who does good. So our good works can't really give us anything before God. There's no standing it can give us. There's no way that we can impress Him. There's nothing extra that we can gain from Him because we do good works. Are you thinking that that somehow can bolster up your standing. Maybe you feel like you're on shaking ground, that you believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. If I do enough good things, then certainly God will, that that will put me over the top. No, friends, we need to trust in Christ alone. Or maybe you're trusting in your family's faith. There are a lot of us in this church who've grown up in Christian homes. A lot of us who have faithful parents and, 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 and faithful grandparents. Godly parents, godly grandparents who we saw them live out their testimony in Christ. We saw them grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We saw models of faithfulness lived out before us. And maybe you're thinking, well, because my parents were good, faithful Christians, because they were exemplary Christians, that somehow what they did can be sort of added to my account, that what, what good they may have done will spill over to me. That just because I grew up in a Christian home, and just because my parents are exemplary Christians, that somehow that will give me extra standing before God. The Bible tells us that each of us will stand before God and will give an account of our own lives individually because we are each responsible for our own sins before God. So, 
just because you come from a faithful family, Christian home, that's insufficient to save you. Or maybe you're trusting in Christ, but you're also trusting in the fact that you're part of a church, you're part of our church. Maybe you believe that because you attend church here, or even that you're a member here, that somehow God is pleased with you. That will maybe put you over the top. That anything that Christ lacks, that, that by being a member of our church or by attending church here, that you will that you'll gain some extra favor or merit with God. A church membership should be indicative that you are believing the gospel. But there are many people today who believe that just because they are a member of a church, that will make them a Christian. And that will contribute something to their salvation. But it won't. I think it was Keith Green who said, going to a church, attending church, being a member of a church, doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? That's not what's going to happen just by coming and worshiping, just by being a part of a church. That's not going to give you any kind of salvation. In fact, the sad tragedy is that hell will be filled with church members who weren't trusting in Christ for their salvation. I want to make sure that we understand that. This is a sad reality that Jesus speaks of in the parable of the sower, right? That there will be people who respond positively to the gospel but who do not endure for one reason or another. Are you trusting in something besides Christ to save you? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? I hope you're trusting in Christ alone, because only what Christ could do is the remedy that we need for our sins. Jesus dealt with our sins on the cross by bearing the penalty that those sins deserved. The Father unleashed His divine fury upon Jesus instead of upon us. And then Jesus was raised from the dead for our justifications, Paul says in Romans. He grants us His righteousness. So that on the day of judgment, when we stand before a holy and righteous God, God our judge, God will declare us righteous, not because we are, but because we bear Christ's righteousness. It's been imputed to us, it's been given to us, based upon what He's done at the cross. So, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you that just as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, how did you receive Him? By repenting of your sins and trusting in Him alone. So, Paul says in Colossians, continue to walk with Him. Continue walking in that very faith. So essential that we keep that in mind. There is nothing that you can do There is nothing that we can do to merit this great salvation. It has been given to us as a gift through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the test case of Titus has one more important consequence. And that is here that because Paul refused to circumcise Titus, it demonstrated that there was agreement between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles so that there was unity amongst those early believers in those first days, Paul's refusal to circumcise Titus demonstrated agreement and unity among the apostles about the gospel. By compelling Titus not to be circumcised, the Jerusalem apostles agreed with Paul that justification comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. And that agreement is further symbolized in verse 9 by the right hand of fellowship. The pillars, uh, Paul mentions the pillar apostles, uh, 
Cephas or Peter, James, the Lord's brother who had become the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and John, one of those early apostles of Jesus. They constituted the, the, the pillars, the, the main leaders, the support system, if you will, for the church in Jerusalem. They, Paul says, extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. That was a symbolic indication that they all shared gospel fellowship together. They were all brothers in Christ agreeing on the true gospel and proclaiming that true gospel in their ministries. Now, again, remember that in chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, Paul wanted to assert his independence from the Jerusalem apostles. Paul received the gospel not from the apostles, but from God. He received it as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ, he says, back in chapter 1, verse 12. Paul did not submit his gospel to the Jerusalem apostles for verification or further clarification. Paul ministered for several years faithfully before ever visiting Jerusalem. And even then when he did visit, it was a short visit. And Paul continued ministering for a lengthy time before this extended visit to Jerusalem. So Paul could not have misunderstood or distorted the gospel, as the Judaizers claimed, because they had no substantial influence on his understanding of the gospel. They had no substantial influence on the direction of his ministry. So on the one hand, Paul's independence from the Jerusalem apostles undermines the Judaizers' charges against Paul. He hasn't misunderstood them. He hasn't distorted it. God called him to this. God gave him this gospel. He's been faithful to preach it and to minister with it apart from their input. But now, on the other hand, the Jerusalem apostles here in chapter 2 agree with Paul, and that provides a second whammy, if you will, against the Judaizers. The Judaizers, again, themselves claim some kind of connection to the Jerusalem church. They may have even presented themselves as ambassadors of the Jerusalem apostles, that they had been set out with their authority. But as Paul argues, the Jerusalem apostles agree with Paul and not the Judaizers. And how can we tell? They did not compel Titus to be circumcised. They weren't forcing Gentiles to be circumcised before they came to faith in Christ, or before they became uh, Christians and admitted into the full membership of the church. No, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas showing again their support for his understanding of the gospel and his ministry. Furthermore, in verse 9, it says they recognize, they perceive the grace that was given to Paul. In other words, they saw that God was blessing Paul's ministry with great fruitfulness. The pillar apostles affirmed Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, right? It says that they endorsed that. They were encouraging of that. Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. Peter's ministry was to the Jews, to the circumcised. Both preached the same gospel, although they preached that gospel in different fields. But they preached the same gospel. They preached salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And a good example of this is in Acts chapter 11, when Paul has the the vision to go to Cornelius, a Gentile Roman soldier. God sends him in that vision to Cornelius to preach the gospel to him, even though he was a Gentile. And there was this big question among the Jews, can we receive Gentiles into the church? And Peter says, yes, absolutely. They're trusting in Christ just as we are. And didn't demand any further work on Cornelius' behalf. So Paul's argument here to the Galatians is that the Jerusalem apostles affirm him. 
And they endorse him. They say that Paul's ministry is not in vain. They were validating Paul's work and encouraging him to continue in it. Well, the takeaway here is that the gospel is the ground of unity for the, fellow, for the followers of Jesus. What, what binds us together? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true gospel. The gospel of grace alone. The gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is the ground and center of our unity and our fellowship as a church. And it must be because there is only one gospel. If the Jerusalem apostles had required circumcision for Titus or demanded that Paul preach the necessity of works of the law in addition to faith in Christ, Paul would not have had fellowship with them. Paul could not have had fellowship with them. They would have been preaching a different gospel. But the gospel is only one message to proclaim. It is the message that is essential for salvation. There is only one message, right? That's why there can't be many paths to God. There can't be many ways to salvation. It can't be that they're all, every religion will take us to God. No. There is only one remedy for sin. And that is Christ's death and resurrection. And therefore there is only one gospel to proclaim. Because that is the way of salvation. Therefore, there is only one gospel, there is only one foundational message, there is only one thing that binds us all together as the people of God. And that is what all the apostles, Paul and the Jerusalem apostles, rallied around. They held together. They upheld the, 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 the gospel for the glory of God. And that conviction must continue to guide the church today. And again, I would encourage us as Christians to be discerning. Not everything that's called the church is a church by a biblical definition. Not everything that passes itself off as Christian, just because you slap a Christian label on something, doesn't necessarily make it Christian. How does a church understand the gospel? If for some reason the Lord ever leads you away from this church, whether you move, whether you frustrate with something, whether you feel like God's calling you somewhere else, whatever you do, please, by all means, investigate another church and see what do they proclaim. And if it's not this message, run away from it. There is only one message to proclaim. So how does a church understand the gospel? How does something that passes itself off as Christian understand the gospel? With those that understand it rightly, then, we can extend the right hand of fellowship. We can labor together in different parts of the Lord's vineyard. We can declare the same message of the truth of the gospel. But apart from that basic yet crucial understanding, we cannot fellowship together and we cannot work together. And so we must be discerning to preserve a unity based upon the gospel. So this gospel showdown in Jerusalem was necessary, Paul says, to preserve the truth of the gospel. For Titus, for Paul, for the Jerusalem apostles, for the Galatians, and even for us. We continue today to uphold the truth and sufficiency of the gospel, just as Paul defended it 2,000 years ago. Friends, we must always believe the gospel. We must always walk in the gospel. We must always proclaim the gospel because it is our only hope. It's our only hope in this life. It's our only hope in death. May we strive for this gospel.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it tells us the truth, that it records this incident from 2,000 years ago, but yet with a sense of freshness to it, Father, that the same struggles that the Apostle Paul faced when he went to Jerusalem and the same struggle that he faced with the Galatians is a similar struggle that we face today. We are bombarded with all kinds of messages that would seek to cause us to deviate from this one true message which has been given to us. And so, Father, I pray today that you would help us to continue to walk in that which we have received, that Christ alone, by his death and resurrection, has saved us from our sins. He has delivered us from this present evil age. He has reconciled us to you. He has brought us into your family. He has given us eternal life. Because, Lord, there is no alternative. There is no tweaking. There is no adding. There is nothing else to contribute except what Christ has already done. May we rest in that, Father. May we hold on to it, cling to it, and may we proclaim it for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.